Hello, my fellow geoscience aficionados. You are listening to Nice Chats from the Geology Podcast Network. I am Dr. B, and in each episode, I will interview an expert in various areas in geoscience and share with you a little bit of their knowledge and expertise in the research of natural problems. Each of our episodes has a central theme, and since we will have an expert walk us through the various subjects, you don't need to worry about having any previous knowledge of what we'll be talking about. As long as you're passionate about the study of geosciences, I, with the help of our guests and occasional co-host, will take care of feeding you all the information that you need in a casual and fun environment. Today we're doing something different. Sylvia and I are very busy on holiday in Italy, but we still wanted to put out something for our listeners. So we cut together this bonus episode with some things that we could not add previously to our episode on biostratigraphy with Marisa Betts from Loon. Remember Loon? Here we talk about geological timescale and some other interesting things. But if you haven't listened to Marisa's full episode, go back and listen. So we've, we've spoke on this show before about geological time and how you know different from our perception of time it is uh, and one thing that plays an important role in us understanding geological time is the geological time scale can you explain to our listeners what is geological time scale and what is the role of biostatigraphy in constructing that time scale yeah cool so the geological time scale is the global standard for understanding and expressing the history of life on earth. So it's what all of us use, all of us earth scientists use to understand and communicate with each other about the ages of rocks. Um, I think about it sometimes like a measuring stick, you know, that we can, it means that we can put packages of rocks all over the world into a, a broader temporal context. You know, we can understand what's happening in terms of the time, the, the um, deposition of things and the occurrence of different kinds of events over time. Um, with biostratigraphy, it's actually traditionally been that proxy of choice um, to delineate the boundaries in the time scale. Um, and that's usually happened in different regional areas, like I mentioned before, different separate places around the world, and we try and join it together into a big scheme. Um, and there are all sorts of rules to do that. Um, and it's now become very, very important to supplement the biostatigraphic data that um, you use with other kinds of uh, temporal proxies, like the chemostratigraphic data that I mentioned, and anything else that helps kind of uh, constrain and correlate different packages of rocks. So basically, it's a rule now that you have to take on that multi-proxy approach when you're defining boundaries in the timescale. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, speaking of, you know, multi, uh, multi-disciplinary or multi-proxies approach, I've seen recently on a presentation from um, Professor uh, Holly Stein that they are starting to use rheum-osmium dating in uh, in aiding, you know, with biostratigraphy. And yes. it's very interesting because you never think of rheum-osmium as having this kind of capability you know, to get to really um, good precision. But what mm -hmm. they do to get around that is that 
within a same fossil, you have two different types of materials and they have different concentration of rhenium osmium. So basically, if you plot them in a graph, they form a line and with that you can get like very, very precise uh, dates, which is uh, very, very interesting. Yeah. Oh, how far can they go back with that? How, how old? So I've, I actually dated um, some black shales uh, during my PhD with rhenium osmium. And we actually also come, did, you know, use the similar strategy where we dated the black shales and the sedimentary pyrites that, mm. uh, that are within this shale. And uh, it's, it's one of the oldest shales to ever be dated, probably like top five oldest. Uh, and we got ages at uh, 2.7 GA, oh, so a billion years. And what yeah. was, like, what kind of era? Does that have or uh, for this particular sample we got down to about 45 million years okay uh, error and mm -hmm. uh, but yeah I would say the error uh, you know an error of like two to three percent is quite common mm -hmm. uh, but they have been g getting uh, better results with the advancement of uh, of the techniques you know yeah the, so it's um... very exciting yeah. there is a big limitation on the constant on the on the uncertainty of the decay constant. Okay. Uh, but yeah, like the future is bright, let's say. Yeah, that's yeah. there's all sorts of different proxies that people are exploring. I'm kind of tangentially involved with a um, study looking at glauconite or apatite, mm -hmm. dating, dating, I forget the um, system, the isotope system they're using, but... Uh, um, so for apatite, you can do uranium lead, rubidium strontium... Rubidium strontium. And some iodium. <laughs> rubidium strontium yeah so i think yeah. that's what they're, they're using because the in glauconite um we have lots of glauconite in the cambrian it seems to be everywhere um and yeah. in south australia we have this really annoying situation where volcanism only happens starts to happen at 515 million years um mm -hmm. but we have sediments that go way back before that but no way to get absolute dates out of it um, but yeah, heaps of glauconite. So hopefully maybe that, that technique, you know, if it gets refined and refined and we get some reliable dates, that could help us a lot, actually. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, yeah that's very super cool. Um, okay, going back to the geological time scale. Mm -hmm. I always wonder this, who comes up with a table? Who decides when all the different periods and, area and eras start and end? And what are the criteria that they use to do that? Yeah, that's a really good question because I don't know if um, many people, like everybody uses the geological timescale, but I'm not sure if everyone really understands how it's built. Um, and yeah, so it's built by a group called the International Commission on Stratigraphy, or the ICS. And that's just a like a big and old sub-faction of the International Union of Geological Sciences, so the IUGS. Um, and the ICS is divided up into 17 subcommissions and they're all made of groups of scientists and they're charged with defining and refining global boundaries um, in different parts of the geological timescale. And these groups ultimately decide on uh, the position of GSSPs. So those are the... Um, the global, it's an acronym, the global boundary stratotype section and point. Um, 
better known probably as the golden spikes. Uh, so they're those, they actually go and put a golden spike into a boundary in rocks um, around the world at places where they decide where that boundary goes. Um, oh, cool. and, and you yeah. can visit those. Yeah, you can go visit them. They're kind of like oh, a like geotourism cool. sort of spot. So it's it is quite um, prestigious to have a GSSP in your backyard or to have um, have uh, defined one. Yeah, yeah. So the, there are lots of rules and lots of criteria that you have to follow if you want to uh, define a GSSP. And there's a website actually where you can go and make sure that everything you're following all the rules and you're doing all the right things. Um, the marker that you choose needs to be independent of FASIs. Um, it needs to be able to be correlated globally. So it's no use if it's only found in one place or in one type of rock, um, becomes kind of useless then. The, the package of sediments that it's defined in need to be thick and continuous. They need to be unaffected by tectonics or metamorphic processes. And also one of the rules is that the outcrop needs to be located somewhere that's easily accessible so that other people can go and study it. Um, so yeah, there's lots and lots of rules and there's lots of discussions back and forth. So people like to propose um, boundaries or sections where they think a GSSP should be. Um, and everybody discuss, discusses the merits and the drawbacks of each of um, the proposed sections and the markers. And it can actually get kind of heated. I'm, I'm a corresponding member of the, um, the Cambrian subcommission. Um, so that means I get all of the emails about everybody's ideas um, and what they, they think of um, everyone else's ideas. And um, they can be, yeah, they, they can be some hard reading sometimes. Wow, man, that's, uh, that's very surprising in the academic environment. Yeah, so the, everybody, you know, and like I said before, you know, defining a GSSP or having a GSSP in your backyard is really prestigious, you know, and it does mm. um, encourage geotourism. So that kind of encourages people to have some really staunch views. Um, yeah. And But at the end of the day, it does come down to a vote. So everybody gets okay. to express their ideas, but then and then they do a vote. And so, yeah, so it just means that I guess when when they do decide on a GSSP for a boundary, like not everybody's going to love it. Um, and so that just means that oh, people right. could, you know, uh, more things to debate about yeah. in the future and in the literature, I think. Yeah, that's democracy. That's yep. why it works. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. It is. A, it's a democratic Most process of the time. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, why is it that some horizons in the sedimentary record are more prolific for the existence of fossils? Yeah, that's a great question. And I guess you can answer it a few different ways. So you can think about our time, geological time. Um, we have this thing called the Phanerozoic, a huge chunk of time starting at the uh, Lower Cambrian. And Phanerozoic just means visible life. So, you know, if you're somewhere in there, you have much better chance of finding fossils than if you are in the, in the Precambrian, of course. Not that there's no fossils there, they're just usually very small, microscopic even, microbial, um, difficult to preserve and so difficult to find. So yeah, you probably want to aim for something in the Phanerozoic in that 500 million year chunk of time. Um, and like I said before, terrestrial versus marine rocks there just is more terrestrial, uh, sorry, marine rocks 
the terrestrial realm is where sediments are being uh, eroded and shed from, and then they get deposited in the marine realm. So just by virtue mm -hmm. of that process, it means that we get more marine sediments and so more opportunities to find rocks, uh, fossils in them. Um, doesn't mean to say that we don't get terrestrial uh, deposits with fossils in them. Um, a lot of vertebrate remains, dinosaur deposits are found in terrestrial environments, lacustrine, um, fluvial environments like lakes and rivers and things like that. They're just uh, a bit rarer. Um, and then there's also um, what they call biostratonomic processes. So biostratinomy is just a fancy word for the stuff that happens to a dead thing um, before it gets buried. So um, like uh, shells at the beach, for example, they haven't been buried yet. But we see them as part of that, that sedimentary layer on the surface of the seafloor. And winnowing processes mm -hmm. like waves can um, accumulate them all together. And so that stuff can get um, uh, fossilized. And yeah, it means that we can have better chances of finding fossils if they've been winnowed together like that. Fair enough. Um, I'm always <laughs> interested in you know understanding where the search for questions for geological science questions has taken uh, our guests uh, so in your case you know where in the world has this investigation of Cambrian life taken you well I started out doing my honors and my PhD in the Flinders Ranges in South Australia and I still do a lot of work there now we're going up to the field next week, which I'm super excited about. Um, and yeah, so after my PhD, I did some work in China. So I have um, a close, close working relationship with Northwest University in Xi'an in China. Um, and with them, I've done a bunch of field work in South China um, and also North China and the Inner Mongolia Autonomous Region as well. Um, I have some experience doing uh, some really weird field work in Canada. <laughs> um, <laughs> Why is it weird? Well, <laughs> we, I did this directly after I handed in my PhD and I was, um, yeah, looking for some work and uh, I got this opportunity to do some field work in Canada with um, a, a few different people that I'd uh, researchers that I, um, I knew of but hadn't actually met and um, we were going to they suggested we go to the Mackenzie Mountains um, in mm -hmm. the Northwest Territories so this is really far north like it's quite close to the Arctic Circle um, and you know Canada at that at that latitude is you know minus 50 degrees a lot of the year <laughs> and under ice and snow so there's only a few weeks in the year where you can do field work and there are some, I mean, there's wonderful um, uh, pre-Cambrian, Cambrian sections there. All the way up to Middle Cambrian, they've got, I mean, the um, Burgess Shale in Canada is a, a good example of um, a really famous Cambrian deposit. So we were looking for rocks that were a bit young, a bit older than this, sorry. And the, um, the fossils are not shelly, they were... Um, the original unmineralized cuticle of um, organisms that are like over 500 million years old and you need special techniques to get them out um, and they're very delicate and difficult to preserve and of course we'll never see them in the in the rock 
um, when we're in the field, we just have to hope that they're there and get them out uh, later in the lab. But the terrain is really hard and ideally doing work in the Mackenzie Mountains in Canada, you need, you need helicopters. And um, we couldn't really afford helicopters. So um, the next option for us apparently was mountain bikes. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'm not, a, uh, I'm not a professional mountain biker. I'm not even an amateur mountain biker. <laughs> I'm just a paleontologist. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, like um, it was wild, really wild. We carried all of our gear uh, tents and food and everything on our bikes and we cycled mm -hmm. out um several kilometers kilometers and kilometers we didn't uh, of course get as far as we needed to go um and yeah it was it was a real adventure it was a real adventure i yeah. I, I would never i would never recommend mountain bikes for field work to anybody <laughs> <laughs> this this is the kind of experience that we we had like a few examples of this previously in the podcast where you sit here in your comfy chair maybe you know you're listening to this uh, to this podcast on your drive to work and you're just enjoying you know a nice drive and listening to to a show and you think man wow field work with mountain bikes that must be so awesome and in reality it's like yeah it's a good story but you know mm. Oh, yeah, it's a great story. And for that, I'm grateful. Um, but yeah, like I fell off my mount, my bike like several times. I went over the handlebar, oh handlebars <laughs> twice. Um, I came off going, I went, I was like, you know, getting a bit overconfident, you know, like, I was yeah. like, oh, yeah, this is great. I'm really good at this. And then, of course, you know, I'm zooming around a corner. And then, of course, there's a, a dry creek bed that sneaks up on me and I just enter it in the completely the wrong way and end up, my friend said that he saw me from the back and it was, it was just my legs disappearing over my bike. <laughs> and, yeah, he found me in this dry creek bed. I think at that point I couldn't even be bothered getting up. I Gnarly. just stayed there. <laughs> oh. Yeah, it was pretty gnarly. It was pretty gnarly. Um, but yeah, I also do some pretty gnarly field work in Mongolia as well. So, but without mountain bikes, I mean, you know, now anyone suggests field work to me and it doesn't matter really where it is, as long as there's no mountain bikes, I'm basically in like the mountain bikes really set the bar so low that I'll pretty much do anything and go anywhere. Um, my dream is to do field work in Antarctica. There's Cambrian in Antarctica and, um, I've been working on some samples that, um, colleagues have collected. Uh, but I have not been there myself to collect, and that's um, kind of a bucket list research item for me. If this bonus episode wasn't enough to scratch your itch for some nice chats, just go back and listen to some of our classics. Uh, but don't worry, we'll be back next month with a regular episode of Nice Chats. This podcast is brought to you by the Geology Podcast Network. GPN is sponsored by Traveling Geologists. Follow Traveling Geologists on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. More episodes of this and other GPN podcasts are available at travelinggeologists.com 
or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, follow me on Twitter at GeoDrB and on TikTok under the same handle. I have some funny videos there.